This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 288 of the program. Today is Friday, April 30th, and I want to take some time before we get started to thank all of the folks who make this show possible, all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or rejoined. And that includes Bonnie Verhunts, Crowded Crow, James Wolgamuth, JV, Kat and Devin, and Richard Weiderman. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos, or alternatively, you can uh, subscribe to us on twitch.tv slash humanistreport. So we have a fantastic episode for you today. Of course, I'll give you my review of Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. We'll talk about the good, the complicated, the bad, as well as the downright ugly. Also, we'll talk about assholes that seemingly want the pandemic to go on forever. That includes Joe Rogan, who is now discouraging young people from taking the COVID vaccine, and Tucker Carlson, who is now literally encouraging his viewers to harass people who are responsibly wearing masks in public. But on the flip side, Fox News actually did a segment where they encouraged their viewers to get vaccinated, but as you could have guessed, the response from their viewers was, um predictable and on the subject of COVID-19 uh, Bill Gates tripled down on his pro-vaccine apartheid position and you can also follow this under assholes who don't want the pandemic to ever go away and when it comes to our coverage of propaganda Fox News got duped by a British tabloid and Greg Gutfeld's segment on Caitlyn Jenner was painfully stupid so of course I had to talk about it also CNN asks Cory Bush when the squad will flex its muscle and her response was not good so since that was the case I'll respond with some constructive criticism for the squad and advise them how they can more effectively wield their power in my opinion so that's what we've got on the agenda and some additional stories as well hopefully you enjoy what i have in store let's get right to it folks well, believe it or not, we are now about 100 days into Joe Biden's presidency, give or take, and I thought it would be useful to kind of pause from the news stories we talk about pretty frequently on the program and just reflect on the early stage, like the first milestone of Joe Biden's presidency. And uh, there's already so much that this is going to be difficult to kind of... Uh, go through. It's not going to be an exhaustive list of the pros and the cons, but I do want to talk about some of the standout things that he's done. We'll talk about the good, the bad, uh, the mixed slash complicated things, as well as the ugly. Uh, but first and foremost, starting with the good, I, I think that the easiest, most obvious conclusion at this point in time is that predictably, Joe Biden is a much better president than Donald Trump. I think that most reasonable people can deduce that that is the case. Now, having said that, the bar is like below the floor, but I mean, it still matters. And it matters when it comes to issues like COVID-19, because I think it's obvious that Joe Biden has been much more capable and competent at handling the pandemic. It's not a perfect response, but is it better than Donald Trump? Absolutely. And Joe Biden gets credit for setting out to uh, do 100 million vaccinations and not only achieving that goal, but actually passing it. If Donald Trump were president, I don't know 
that I would be in a position to where I had already received my first vaccination in April. I don't think that this would be possible because there are numerous reports that Donald Trump had zero infrastructure built to actually distribute the vaccines. So who knows how long it would have taken to get vaccinated under Donald Trump. So Joe Biden gets credit for actually acting like an adult and doing the bare minimum. But I still don't think his response has been perfect. I think that his push to reopen schools is too hasty, and I don't agree with that. I think that, you know, him not waving, essentially going back on his promise to immediately waive IP rights so that way smaller countries can create their own generic COVID vaccinations, that's bad. But again, so far overall, when you step back and you look at his response to COVID-19, it has been a lot better. Another thing that he gets credit for, obviously, is the Paris Climate Accord. Again, it's hard to give him a lot of credit for this because it's the bare minimum, but Donald Trump wouldn't even allow us to do the bare minimum. And any small steps we took to trying to mitigate climate change, Trump even undid that. So just to not go backwards, I think that that does matter when we're talking about climate change. Is it enough? Mm -mm, not at all. But not going backwards is still preferable to going backwards. Not making progress is preferable to going backwards. And again, when the bar is so low, you know, I can acknowledge these things. Now, one more thing that I want to give him major credit for is in his infrastructure proposal, there's actually a provision that could end the net neutrality debate once and for all by offering funding to build up publicly owned municipal broadband alternatives. So this would not just end monopolies when it comes to the internet, but it would be a game changer. And when it comes to net neutrality, as I expected, he appointed Jessica Rosenworcel to be the acting chair of the FCC. And he's now putting funding into municipal broadband efforts, which is really needed. So if he were able to pull this off, I'll reserve judgment to see more details about this plan. But if he were actually able to pull this off, it would be a game changer. So this is something that net neutrality activists should be proud of. But moving on to the more mixed things. Now, in this category, it's kind of the gray area category where ultimately he did something, but it was temporary or he could have done more. Um, or, you know, he, he did something uh, because he was forced to do something. Um, but in this mixed category, I, I have to start off with the $1,400 checks. Nobody should ever forget the fact that he promised $2,000 checks and he gave us $1,400 checks. Now, thank you for the $1,400. Not good enough, though. You said $2,000. I think it is uh, unforgivable that you didn't follow through with that promise. I'm sorry, but uh, I've got to keep it real. Now, also in the mixed to meh category is uh, withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. I will reserve judgment uh, because if he actually does this, he gets credit for this. And we're not talking about like reducing the troops down to an insignificant level. I'm talking about getting out, period. If he does this, he gets credit. Thus far, he signaled his intent to do that. I am very skeptical that he's actually going to follow through. So we'll put this in the mixed category, but we'll get to uh, foreign policy a little bit more later. Now, uh, I think that David Dayen of the American Prospect did a good job at kind of 
talking through some of the more complicated things about Joe Biden's legacy thus far. Quote, in response to the tragic outbreak of COVID-19 in India, Biden's team ignored calls for help for several days. Finally, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan ended the export ban on raw materials for vaccines. Then, after weeks of prodding, he decided to share with India and the world dormant AstraZeneca vaccines that had been sitting in a warehouse in Baltimore. Also, the administration set a deadline of March 15th for an emergency temporary workplace standard for COVID-19, then shot past that date and at one point even put the rule on hold. After pushing from Senate Democrats and labor unions, finally yesterday, the Department of Labor advanced the temporary standard through the regulatory process, which means it's still not active until after the Office of Management and Budget signs off. The Biden's team's greatest legislative accomplishment, the expanded and advanced child tax credit in the American rescue plan only lasts for one year. Democrats pressured Biden to make that permanent, but he rejected that, citing the high cost, and instead will reportedly only extend it to 2025 in tomorrow's announcement. Representative Richard Neal, chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, has deviated from that script today, introducing a family care bill that makes the CTC permanent. Also, the Biden team needed only to sign a piece of paper to increase the refugee cap and allow tens of thousands of migrants in deplorable conditions to settle in the United States. Biden promised to do it and briefed Congress, then changed his mind. Reportedly, it was his decision and left the refugees stuck on the tarmac. After tremendous pushback from all corners of the party, Biden relented, but only to say that he would set a new refugee cap by May 15th. So these are things that it's a little bit complicated, you know, because he, on one hand, he did something that was good, but if it's not going to be permanent, as it relates to the child tax credit, uh, then, I mean, you get partial credit, but you should have gone further. You know, if, if you finally uh, relented on something because you got pushed back, I mean, that's good, but it, it's complicated, right? So that's why we kind of have this in-between category. But moving on to the bad, uh, you know, this is a lot less uh, difficult to gauge whether or not he is uh, at fault or deserves credit. He's just downright bad. And of course, I'm talking about his foreign policy, which has been predictably atrocious. And in an article for Jacobin by Daniel Bessemer, he thoroughly explains how there's been zero change since he took office. The most important thing to know about the Biden administration's foreign policy so far is that it is structurally identical to the foreign policies of every U.S. president since World War II. It is, simply put, a foreign policy organized around the principle of world domination. Biden's underlings will ensure that the U.S. dollar remains the world's global reserve currency, that the U.S. armed forces retain access to the nation's approximately 750 overseas bases, and that the government continues to spend a grotesque amount on the military. The U.S. left, meanwhile, is in a strange position. The Bernie Sanders campaign and the success of left politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib have demonstrated that there's a real hunger for criticism of the status quo. Simultaneously, however, Sanders' defeat and the relative weakness of AOC, Omar, and Tlaib suggest that socialists need to step back and think through our general approach to the U.S. state and power itself. Foreign policy must 
be central to this effort. Even if Sanders had won the presidency, it would have been difficult to manipulate the levers of power for anti-imperial ends, not least because we socialists don't fully understand how the actually existing American imperial state operates. The state formation is unique in world history. It is not only genuinely global, but it also diffuses power and authority through an opaque network of public institutions, multinational corporations, consultancies, and think tanks. Figuring out how to shape and work within the incredibly complex matrix will require significant intellectual work. It is a project to which the left, presently out of power, though with a hopefully bright future, should dedicate itself. Which brings us to Biden's first 100 days. So far, the new president has promised to remove all troops from Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attacks, failed to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, returned the U.S. to the Paris Climate Agreement on Climate Change, begun to rebuild relationships with allies in Europe and Asia, and adopted an aggressive posture towards Russia and China. All told, Biden has embraced a restorationist approach to U.S. foreign policy, organized around three goals, ending the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, re-establishing domestic and international faith in U.S. leadership, the common euphemism for hegemony, and manufacturing consent for U.S. dominance both at home and abroad by raising the specter of great power competition and a new Cold War. So given what we know about the military-industrial complex, and as the article explains, it essentially it is this amorphous entity that operates semi-autonomously almost. You know, it's not necessarily surprising that Biden is so terrible on foreign policy. But having said that, though, even with all of the pressure from the military-industrial complex, he has chosen unilaterally to make terrible decisions. Him not joining the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran Nuclear Agreement, is unforgivable. He's backtracking on a promise, and sure, it's early, we'll have to wait and see, but this should have been an immediate priority, something that's easy to accomplish. You check it off, and that's a promise fulfilled, but he hasn't done that. And additionally, while we're on the subject of foreign policy, let's just, you know, uh, gradually move over into the ugly category, because I think we can file him choosing to bomb Syria under the ugly. Not only was that illegal under U.S. law, it was illegal under international law. Unacceptable and unforgivable, something that is going to be a stain on his record. But on top of that, while we're talking about the ugly, uh, there's absolutely no excuses when it comes to his approach related to immigration. After promising to halt all deportations within the first 100 days of his administration, he has deported more than 300,000 immigrants. Now, to be overly charitable, he did sign an executive order halting deportations for his first 100 days in office. However, a federal judge who used a Trump Justice Department era policy to shoot down that executive order changed things, right? So Biden, he could have adapted, he could have subverted that ruling, he could have postponed all of the deportations to meet this promise at a minimum. But he didn't do that. Instead, he went in the opposite direction, and guess what? Kids are still in cages. Folks are still getting deported, and kids are still being caged, and it gets worse than that. 500 kids are being crammed into cages meant for 32 people. And guess what? COVID is spreading rapidly. The positivity rate at at least one facility in Texas is 14%. That is insane. That is deadly. 
And as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, rights group United We Dream warned Tuesday that unless he takes immediate steps to improve his administration's treatment of immigrants, President Joe Biden is at serious risk of repeating the destructive failures of former President Barack Obama, who deported roughly 3 million people during his eight years in office, despite Biden's characterization of Obama's mass deportations as a mistake and pledged to usher in a more humane immigration system, United We Dream estimates that the administration has deported just over 300,000 people since January, largely using a Trump-era policy called Title 42. In a statement on Monday, Cynthia Garcia of United We Dream stressed that Title 42 was designed under one of the most anti-immigrant administrations in modern history. President Biden and the Department of Homeland Security must be reminded that their inaction to protect vulnerable immigrant communities seeking refuge in the United States is not only putting lives on the line, it upholds a white nationalist immigration system that seeks to expel and keep black and brown immigrants out at any cost, said Garcia, who voiced dismay at the Biden administration's deportation of vulnerable Haitians and others. According to a report released late last month by the Haitian Bridge Alliance and other advocacy groups, the Biden administration used Title 42 to deport more Haitians during its first weeks in power than the Trump administration did in all of fiscal year 2020. Now, for those of you who don't know what Title 42 is, this is what Trump used to basically uh, have the pandemic be the justification to deport lots and lots of people. So, having said that, just stepping back and taking a look at Joe Biden's administration thus far at the 100-day point, give or take, again, I would say that um, there's been some good, there's been a lot of really bad and ugly things, but ultimately nothing has fundamentally changed. And this is what I expected. And also, this is what he promised. But obviously, this is by no means an exhaustive list. This is just a lot of things that stood out to me. Having said that, though, I did take the Twitter to ask people what they believed were the best and worst things of Joe Biden's administration. And here are their responses. Michael Salamone says that he did enjoy him tripping. Uh, but to be serious, uh, you know, his uh, pending promise break from expanding Medicare might be worse. Definitely. Um, Oscar says the stimulus was the best, even if it was watered down. And the worst is increased spending on military and police during a pandemic. Absolutely. Zachary is impressed by the vaccine rollout. Um, but the ones that spring to his mind when it comes to the negatives, of course, immigration. That's what we talked about. It is a continuation of Trump's policies. And that is correct. Treating the pandemic as a serious issue that's important to Aaron and also, the worst thing is largely running things on autopilot and standing by on important issues instead of using the power of the bully pulpit. Totally agree with that here. Another person says uh, COVID-19. And then also, the worst thing is firing staffers for disclosing marijuana use. This is something that I totally forgot about because so much has happened uh, since he was inaugurated. This, you know, there's a lot. Uh, this person, I agree with them. The worst is immigration, 100%. It's awful. Another person says handling of the COVID-19. And there's quite a bit of responses, so I'll just kind of uh, scroll through them. And if you want to uh, pause the video or check out this Twitter thread, then you can, you know, see for yourself. But a lot of folks kind of say the same thing. The best thing is the vaccine rollout, which I agree with, his handling of COVID-19 and the stimulus to an extent, even if it was watered down. And a lot of folks talking about his terrible foreign policy and also his uh, stances towards immigration, uh, deferring student loans. This is actually something that is really important, but he won't say whether or not he'll cancel student debt. Yeah, and this impacted me personally because deferring my student loans that, that helps me. But whether or not he's going to cancel student debt, 
Who knows? Um, best vaccine rollout. Worst, not doing this to Joe Manchin. Love this. Yeah, so there's a lot of really great, um, really great uh, responses here, and you know, kind of a variety of answers here. But overall, you know, it, it's a it's a mixed bag, right? Joe Biden is better than Donald Trump, but that doesn't mean that he's good by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, this person says getting rid of the Muslim ban. Absolutely, that matters. But the worst, everything on foreign policy. And yeah, I mean, this is someone who is just kind of keeping the status quo as it is. So, you know, I'm not going to go through all this is a lot. I did not anticipate this many responses. Uh, but, you know, there you have it. That's that's kind of the takeaway. This isn't necessarily a comprehensive list of every single thing he's done that's good and bad. It's just the main things that stand out. But, uh, you know, sound off in the comments. Let me know what you think. And I'll, I'll be there to uh, heart some of your comments. And uh, I'll pin the best one that I see. Just when I thought that it wasn't possible for Joe Rogan to get any worse, he keeps getting progressively worse. And look, I was never a fan of Joe Rogan. In fact, I hated Joe Rogan before it was cool to hate Joe Rogan. Having said that, though, even I can acknowledge that there was a time where he would actually talk to physicists. He'd bring on folks to talk about astronomy and actual science. But now it seems like he's always talking to right-wing reactionaries and conspiracy theorists. And you can see the way that it's directly changing his worldview, where he's no longer trusting the science on a plethora of issues, where he's no longer, you know, at least somewhat liberal when it comes to economics and uh, social policy. Uh, but now he's just indistinguishable from uh, conspiracy theorists that you see uh, everywhere. And it's really depressing to see uh, not because I care about Joe Rogan. I couldn't care less about him as an individual, but I care because there are millions of people that tune in every single day to listen to his broadcasts. What he says, it actually holds weight. It has a real world impact. People take him seriously and they take what he says seriously. So when he does things like this, what we're about to see, I can't help but think he's a lost cause. So here is Joe Rogan uh, actively discouraging folks who are younger, uh, telling them to not get the COVID vaccine. And people say, do you think it's safe to get vaccinated? I've said, yeah, I think for the most part, it's safe to get vaccinated. I do. I do. But if you're like 21 years old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I, I go, no. Yeah. You, are you healthy? Are you a healthy person? Like, look, don't do anything stupid, but you should take care of yourself. You yeah. should, if you're, if you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, and like, I don't think you need to worry about this. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But there's a uh, lot of jobs that will tell you you need to have this. Well, that's but what's starting to happen now. People are worried about them doing it for their children. And we talked about this earlier, yeah. that the, 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 you might have to have your, your children vaccinated. And you know, I can tell you as someone who's both, both my children got the, va the, the virus, it was nothing. I mean, I hate to say that if someone's children died from this, I'm very sorry that that happened. I'm not... I'm not in any way diminishing that, but I'm saying the personal experience that my children had with COVID was nothing. One of the kids had a headache. The other one didn't feel good for a couple of days. Yeah. Like maybe, I mean, not feel good. Like, mm, like no, no big deal. No coughing, right. no, no, no achy, no like in agony. There was none of that. It was very mild. It was, it was akin to them getting a cold.
Yeah, and you can have this thing where it's like you were saying this virtue signaling and this kind of like theatrical display of I get the vaccine, what a good person I am, I care about everyone. But you're like, look, I'm, I'm, my daughter's a lot younger than your kids, but I'm like, yeah, I'm not injecting my daughter with something to fucking virtue signal. Right. Like, I'm not doing that. Right. If there's something that she's of no risk, statistically has no risk from, right. I'm sorry. I'm not taking any experiment uh, on her in that. And that's that's my attitude But it's it. amazing that that's controversial. Yeah. That even saying that, I'm not going to inject my child with the vaccine is controversial. Yeah. It's crazy. Because, again, we are not talking about even the flu that we just found out killed 22,000 people last year. We're not talking about that. Right. We're talking about something that is not statistically dangerous for children but yeah. yet people still want you to get your child vaccinated which is crazy to me yeah like you should be vaccinated if you are vulnerable it doesn't work that way you fucking moron that's not the way that this works does he not even think about what might happen if enough people took him seriously, if you're a young person and you think that you can't catch a virus because you eat healthy and you work out, what if you do catch that virus and you end up dying or you spread it to one of your loved ones? Like, does Joe Rogan not think through the consequences? How the things he says has a real world impact? Is he not worried that his stupidity is going to get one of his fans killed? I just, I don't know how... He sleeps at night spreading this level of stupidity and misinformation that is actually deadly. I mean, with how many people watch Joe Rogan's podcast, how many people now has he just convinced to not take the COVID vaccine? It's just honestly, it's shocking to have no level of regard, no sense of responsibility for that gigantic platform that you have, for the you know immense amount of power that you hold. He says, if you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, I don't think you need to worry about it. That's not the way that viruses work. A virus isn't going to think, hmm, who should I infect? That person is young and, you know, they're, they're eating healthy and they're exercising. I guess I'll go and infect this other person. I mean, that's not the way that this works. I shouldn't have to explain this to a 50 plus year old man. And furthermore, even if you're lucky enough to survive COVID-19, there are long-term health ramifications that we are still, till this day, learning about. And first of all, more and more young people are getting hospitalized as new variants spread. Second of all, a study from UC Berkeley found that even if you're lucky enough to survive COVID-19, you may still deal with long-term damage to your heart, your lungs, your nervous system. This is a serious virus, and some younger COVID patients actually died due to strokes. The point is, we're still learning about the virus. So for you to say this, to actually discourage people from getting the vaccine if they're young, what the fuck are you thinking? Have you lost your mind? Any sense of reason? Have you just like flushed it all down the toilet? What's going on here, Joe? What the fuck is going on here? And, um, you know, he at least admits, sure, there are some people that had kids died due to COVID-19 and that's sad, but I mean, my kids got it and they were fine. There are some people who get COVID-19 and they have no symptoms at all. They're completely asymptomatic. Other folks die from it. This affects people in a plethora of ways. 
So for you to just say, you know what, if you're young, don't even worry about it because my kids were fine. That's just so irresponsible and reckless. And his guest added, I'm not injecting my daughter with something to fucking virtue signal. And he adds, I'm not taking any experiments on her. First of all, it's not virtue signaling to vaccinate your child. It's science, bitch. It's science. And if you want your daughter to be admitted into school, you're going to have to provide them with proof that she's received numerous vaccinations. And imagine being so arrogant to think that this vaccine that's been proven to be safe, that's already been uh, used to inoculate millions of people around the globe, you just think, well, you know what? I think it's an experiment, so I'm going to uh, just say it's an experiment to millions of people. Do you have a degree in uh, any scientific field? Do you know about epidemiology? No? So shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up because you don't know what you're talking about. But Joe Rogan chimes in saying it's amazing that that's controversial. Except it's controversial because you're not just having a conversation with your bro behind closed doors. You're broadcasting your idiocy to millions of people. And what you say has ramifications. It influences society, which in turn influences all of us at the individual level. The macro impact that you have has a micro level impact on all of our lives. So yeah, it's a little bit controversial. I actually am a little bit irritated because idiots like you, Joe Rogan, are doing your part to prolong the duration of this fucking pandemic that I desperately want to be over so I can see my family again. I mean, folks like Joe Rogan, he's never taken the pandemic seriously, right? He complained about masks. He complains about lockdowns. And now he's complaining about the vaccine. So no matter what we do to address the pandemic, he's not satisfied. He just wants to pretend as if it's not a thing. And that's the way that he's carried on with his life, carelessly and recklessly so. But for folks who actually care about their loved ones, who take it seriously, at some point in time in the next decade, I would love to just go back to pre-pandemic life. It's not like that was perfect, but to not worry about possibly infecting someone that I love, that would be a great feeling. But dumb fucks like Joe Rogan, they're doing their part to make sure this pandemic lasts forever. And there's always this argument, well, look, if you want to get vaccinated, that's fine. You get inoculated and you can protect yourself and I'll choose to do my own thing. Except the way that we stop pandemics is by achieving herd immunity. And vaccines are one way to reach herd immunity. So if it's the case that, mm, let's just say 35% of the population reaches herd immunity, and that's not enough because likely that wouldn't be enough. Ideally, we're aiming for 70 to 85%, depending on the epidemiologist that you ask. But let's say that we don't actually reach herd immunity and the virus continues to infect people and spread throughout the globe. Guess what happens? Eventually, all of the vaccines that we've taken to protect ourselves, well, a new variant might emerge that is resistant to the vaccines. And we're all fucked and we're back to square one. And folks like Joe Rogan, who spread this misinformation, are to thank for that. Because he's a, con a conspiracy theorist who sounds no different than some homeopathic, you know, snake oil salesman. No, it's not the case that you can not get COVID-19 if you exercise. No, it's not the case that uh, you can stop yourself from getting cancer if you eat healthy. That's not the way that things work. Bring on a scientist that you used to speak with. Have them talk about it. And if you brought on an epidemiologist or someone who knows anything about the pandemic, uh, obviously what they said didn't penetrate that thick skull of yours, so bring them back on. Have them state it again. Because holy fucking shit, what you're doing is so dangerous. And the fact that you don't have any sense of responsibility when you broadcast to millions of people, 
shows that you are either a careless prick or you actually are genuinely stupid for believing the dumb things that you're saying. It's a distinction without a difference. Either way, do better to say the fucking least. So the Daily Mail, which is a British tabloid website that is about 50% sensationalist propaganda and misinformation and 50% advertisements, they published an article on April 22nd about Joe Biden's climate plan, and they falsely claim that Joe Biden's plan could limit you to eat just one burger per month. Now, anyone who sees this title immediately, your red flags should be up. Your bullshit detector should be beeping constantly because... You know, at a minimum, you should be thinking, maybe they're being a little bit hyperbolic, but at most, you should be thinking, are they just outright fabricating this? Because even if I don't like Tucker Carlson, for example, if I saw a headline that said, Tucker Carlson shits pants on national television, then proceeds to fling feces at camera, I would think, wow, that's, that's certainly believable. And since I dislike Tucker Carlson, it would be convenient for me to believe this news, because then I would make a video about it and make fun of him. But I would think, mm, I need to know at least a little bit more. I probably should look into this a little bit more. Conservatives, however, even if that headline was a little bit out there, they fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Now, the provision in Joe Biden's climate plan that the article was referring to wasn't a provision within Joe Biden's climate plan at all. In fact, that provision was an unrelated study published by the University of Michigan back in 2020. And as Yahoo News explains, according to the authors, the study analyzes hypothetical reduction in the consumption of animal-based foods in the U.S. diet and relies on a number of simplifying assumptions. It is not a policy proposal or suggestion. So the study was unrelated to Joe Biden's climate plan. However, the Daily Mail reported that what they said is actually part of Joe Biden's climate plan, but I mean, that's all that conservatives need. They read the headline and they thought, oh my God, this is terrible. So predictably, conservatives fell for misinformation and the largest conservative news outlet, which should, you know, in theory, be fact-checking things like this, they fell for it and they reported that the study that was misidentified as part of Joe Biden's provision by the Daily Mail, the study actually referenced Joe Biden's climate plan and the study is what's suggesting that most people wouldn't be able to eat meat or just would be able to eat like one burger per month under Joe Biden. Um, it's it's sad, but it's entirely predictable, you know, given the state of uh, Fox News and conservative media. Take a look at their coverage of this. Speaking of stupid, there's a study coming out of the University of Michigan, which says that to meet the Biden Green New Deal targets, America has to get this. America has to stop eating meat, Stop eating poultry, fish, seafood, eggs, dairy, and animal-based fats. Okay, we got that? No burgers on July 4th. No steaks on the Barbie. I'm sure middle America is just going to love that. Can you grill those Brussels sprouts? So get ready. You can throw back a plant-based beer with your grilled Brussels sprouts and wave your American flag. Call it July 4th Green. Now, I'm making fun of this because I intend to make fun of it. 
This kind of thinking is stupid. Say goodbye to your burgers if you want to sign up for the Biden climate agenda. That's the finding of one study. In order to help hit the Biden administration's climate goals of reducing emissions by 50% from 2005 by 2030, researchers say you'd have to cut about 90% of red meat from your diet. For Americans, that means a limit of four pounds of red meat per year, or break that down further, a single average-sized burger every month. Let's tuck in some more here. Larry Kudlow joins us now. I can hear the refrain from Clara Peller from the grave. Larry going, where's the beef? <laughs> where's the beef? I don't even eat beef, okay? Oh. I mean, I eat chicken and I eat fish. Maybe once a year I eat beef. But the study may be right, but it's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> this comes from these ideological global warming zealots who don't understand the havoc and damage they're going to wreak on this country and maybe the rest of the world. Or maybe they do get it and they don't care. And you ask yourself, for what? Okay? Do you like red meat? Occasionally, like to have a steak, a burger, grill, or barbecue on Memorial Day, the 4th of July, or for no reason at all. Not so fast. The left, with their Green New Deal, wants to make sure you don't. They were freaking out about this, shrieking hysterically at the top of their lungs all weekend. And this wasn't in the videos that we saw. But can we just appreciate this? Bye-bye, burgers. This is a news organization. They couldn't even read beyond the headline. This is a multi-million, probably multi-billion dollar enterprise. And they couldn't even distribute one or two fact checkers to just look into this a little bit more. Nobody at Fox News thought, hmm, this seems a little bit hyperbolic and maybe not factual. Maybe we'll just dig a little bit deeper into this. Not a single person at Fox News did that. And all weekend, they freaked out about this. Running segments with a Chiron that says, bye-bye burgers. I would say unreal, but it really is like this is exactly what you'd expect from Fox News. And once they freaked out about this, um, since they are a trusted news network among American conservatives, American conservatives then proceeded to freak out about this. Lauren Boebert tweeted out, Joe Biden's climate plan includes cutting 90% of red meat from our diets by 2030. They want to limit us to about four pounds a year. Why doesn't Joe stay out of my kitchen? Marjorie Taylor Greene posted a picture of Biden with a hamburger in order to hypocrisy burn him and added, the hamburglar, no burgers for thee, but just for me. Oh, you got him, Marjorie. Good job. Texas Governor Greg Abbott shared a screenshot of Fox News' lies and then stated, not gonna happen in Texas. So the entire right in America spent the whole weekend freaking out, trying to burn Joe Biden for supposedly including a ban of sorts uh, on red meat in his climate proposal when that's not actually the case. And then on Monday, uh, Fox News finally issued a correction. On Friday, we told you about a study from the University of Michigan to give some perspective on President Biden's ambitious climate change goals. That research from 2020 found that cutting back how much red meat people eat would have a drastic impact on harmful greenhouse gas emissions. The data was accurate, but a graphic and a script incorrectly implied that it was part of Biden's plan for dealing with climate change. That is not the case. Well, how responsible of them. Oops. Did our multi-billion dollar news agency uh, run with a headline all weekend from a British tabloid? We're sorry. I know that the damage has already been done, and now millions and millions of people think that Biden's climate plan wants to ban red meat. 
But uh, oops, we're sorry. We corrected it. Don't attack us for it. Don't expect us to be more responsible as a news organization. Now, if anyone is going to talk about Joe Biden's climate change proposal, it should be that it doesn't go far enough. But what Fox News wants to do is they want you to believe that it goes too far. He's giving in to all of the demands of the socialist radical left in America, when in actuality, that's not happening. He should be giving in to their demands, because regardless of what's politically possible at this time, I mean, the climate doesn't care about political barriers and obstacles and the political context. What needs to be done needs to be done. And there is truth in that study, and that we do need to reduce our consumption of red meat. And so what they tried to do, though, is basically further solidify this narrative that Joe Biden is an extremist. He's a radical leftist himself, which is laughable. And um, yeah, he is going so far as to even control what we eat as Americans. It's just, they're so willing to, you know, sell this narrative that they will take anything. Look how easily they're duped by misinformation. If this got them, then what else could they be duped by? All throughout the pandemic, Tucker Carlson has used his massive platform to spread lies and misinformation about COVID-19. I mean, he's been wishy-washy on masks. He cited skewed data from quack doctors that supposedly uh, confirmed that the seriousness of the virus and contagiousness of the virus has been vastly overstated by mainstream media. But even though he's been proven wrong time and again, he keeps getting worse. And his latest thing is to push this idea that the COVID vaccines, maybe they're not that good of an idea. Maybe it's just a form of control by our authoritarian government that just really wants you to obey them. But just when I thought he couldn't get any worse, he managed to somehow surprise me. This is by far the worst thing he's ever said as it relates to COVID-19. And after watching this, uh, I'm ready to conclude that this is by far the most dangerous propagandist in modern history. It's not like he's saying this on a YouTube channel. He's not saying this on some fringe far-right channel like Newsmax or OAN. He's saying this, what we're about to see, on the largest news network, on the most popular television show in America. Not even Tony Fauci still pretends that masks are medically necessary. Instead, masks are purely a sign of political obedience, like Kim Il-sung pins in Pyongyang. We wear them because we have to. The only people who wear masks voluntarily outside are zealots and neurotics. How neurotic are they? Well, we know. A Pew survey from last March found that 64% of white Americans who classify themselves as liberal or very liberal have been diagnosed with an actual mental health condition. And you see them everywhere when you walk down the street in any major city. If you dare to go on foot from Union Station to the Capitol, for example, in Washington without wearing a mask, angry Biden voters will snort at you in judgment. How could you? They're saying from behind the gauze. How could you? That's the question we should be asking of them in return. The rest of us should be snorting at them first. They're the aggressors. It's our job to brush them back and restore the society we were born in. So the next time you see someone in a mask on the sidewalk or on the bike path, do not hesitate. Ask politely but firmly, would you please take off your mask? Science shows there is no reason for you to be wearing it. Your mask is making me uncomfortable. We should do that and we should keep doing it until wearing a mask outside is roughly as socially accepted as lighting a marble in an elevator. It's repulsive. Don't do it around other people. That's the message we should send because it's true.
As for forcing children to wear masks outside, that should be illegal. Your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Call the police immediately. Contact Child Protective Services. Keep calling until someone arrives. What you're looking at is abuse. It's child abuse, and you are morally obligated to attempt to prevent it. If it's your own children being abused, then act accordingly. Let's say your kid's school emailed you to announce that every day after lunch, your sixth grader was going to get punched in the face by a teacher. How would you respond to that? That's precisely how you should respond when they tell you that your kids have to wear masks on the soccer field. That is unacceptable, it is dangerous, and we should act like it, because it is. That was extremely dangerous and divisive. He is intentionally trying to sow discord. He's trying to get his idiot viewers to actually confront people who are responsibly wearing masks, doing the one easiest thing that we as individuals can do to slow the spread of the virus. What is he thinking? He just, he wants to watch the world burn from his mansion. I don't know how else to interpret what he's, what he's saying or what he wants. This is, this is irrational. It's insane. He says masks are purely a sign of ideological obedience. So there's no other utility in wearing masks. It doesn't actually slow the spread of the virus. You know, all of the studies, all of the empirical evidence that we have, it's all nonsense. Really, what you're doing if you wear a mask is your is your virtue signaling to all of your peers in public that you obey. You want everyone to know that you're a little sheep and you'll do whatever daddy government wants you to do. It's just so twisted and deranged. And I love the little uh, jab there at the intelligence of uh, liberals and very liberal people, i.e. leftists. He says, a Pew survey from last March found that 64% of white Americans who classify themselves as liberal or very liberal have been diagnosed with an actual mental health condition. First of all, correlation doesn't equal causation, but really what he wants you to believe is this meme that liberalism or progressivism is a mental disorder. But if you truly want to suggest that a particular ideology is linked to somebody's cognitive abilities, I don't actually think you want to play this game, Tucker Carlson, because a 2012 study from the Journal of Psychological Science finds that people with lower IQs are more likely to be racist and conservative. Also, a 2020 article published in the Journal of Political Psychology found that conservatives actually value stories, i.e. emotions, when evaluating scientific evidence. In other words, feelings over facts. That's how conservatives determine whether or not they believe scientific data. So, I don't think you want to play that game, Tucker Carlson, and I think that that study from 2020 is relevant here. Because as we can see, Tucker Carlson is very emotionally distraught at the idea that folks would wear masks to tr try to stop the spread of this highly contagious, deadly disease. He says the rest of us should be scoffing and snorting at the people who are wearing masks because there's this assumption that people who are wearing masks are looking at the folks who aren't wearing masks and we're just judging them. First of all, I think that most people out in public are just minding their own business, trying to go about their day. Second of all, if I see someone in public without a mask, I don't scoff or make any comment. I just think that's an idiot. That's an asshole. That's probably a Republican who doesn't believe that COVID-19 is real. But he says, actually, they're the aggressors. The people who are wearing masks, in his twisted mind, they're somehow aggressors. And it's our job 
to uh, brush them back and restore society that we were born in. So the people who are wearing masks, they're the ones who are actually uh, propagating this dystopian society that we're living in. They're the ones who are making matters worse for everyone. Except dumb fuck, the people who are wearing the masks are the ones who very clearly want to get back to normal. We're not wearing masks to virtue signal or because we like the way that they look. We're wearing masks because contrary to you probably, we actually want things to return to normal before the fucking pandemic. And if you actually did want to go back to the way that things were back in 2019 before the pandemic hit, then you would be encouraging your idiot viewers to wear fucking masks and get vaccinated. But I'm beginning to think that you want this to be just a permanent thing because then it gives you ammunition politically. It makes you more popular, perhaps, because you tell people what they want to hear. It, it's just... I'm at a loss. I'm at a loss because this is so unbelievably fucking dangerous for the most popular pundit in America to be not only discouraging people from wearing masks, but actively encouraging his audience to confront people, harass people potentially, because they choose to do the right fucking thing, the bare minimum, to stop the spread of COVID-19. And then he says, if you see children wearing masks, well, we should equate that with actual child abuse, and you should call the police immediately because that's basically the same thing as physically beating your kids. So, I mean, if you saw a parent spanking their kid in public i mean you you would assume that they're child abusers abusers so you should treat people who uh put masks on their kids in the same way it's just deranged it's borderline psychopathic and i genuinely don't know what the motive is here there's no money to be made with him discouraging people from wearing masks i mean when when Republicans and capitalists talk, talk about the need to reopen the economy, they do that because there's this financial incentive. But if you want to reopen the economy and get things back to normal faster, masks are crucial to actually making that a reality. So there, there's no financial motive here. There, the only reason, the only utility I could fathom as to why he'd be doing something like this is because he just wants to watch the world burn. I mean, it seems a little bit reductionist and, you know, a little bit hyperbolic, but I just, I don't know what else the goal could possibly be. What else do you get from discouraging people from wearing masks and encouraging your viewers to confront people who are wearing masks? What do you get out of this? He knows it's not true. So I just, I don't know. But what I do know is that no reasonable person should take Tucker Carlson seriously. And reasonable people don't. But you don't have to take my word for it. Take Fox News's word for it because they actually won a defamation lawsuit by persuasively arguing that no reasonable viewer actually takes Tucker Carlson seriously. And the ruling agreed, hence why they won, saying this general tenor of the show should then inform a viewer that he is not stating actual facts about the topics he discusses and is instead engaging in exaggeration and non-literal commentary. And I think that that's obvious to people with two brain cells to rub together. But the thing is that most people who tune into Tucker Carlson, they're not just libs or leftists hate watching Tucker Carlson. They tune into him because they actually do think that he's a legitimate news source. And it's not just that they think he's a legitimate news source. He's one of multiple. They think perhaps he might be one of the best, one of the only truth tellers in America.
It is deeply harmful, deeply dangerous. And I mean, at this point, if you're still defending Tucker Carlson and you don't see through him, I don't know what else to say. What he's doing, it's bad for American society. It's divisive. And at this point, with folks like Tucker Carlson, if people took him seriously, then this pandemic would just last forever. Because the one thing that we can do that's easy is wear masks. And he's discouraging that even. So I don't know what else to say. Like this honestly kind of has me at a loss for words. He's just a fucking scumbag. And he's a terrible human being. So by now, I'm sure that you've heard that Caitlyn Jenner is running to be the governor of California. <sighs> Look, reality television show stars in American politics, obviously, isn't necessarily a new phenomenon. It's still really depressing because I know that she actually does have a chance. I don't know how high of a chance that she has, but would people vote for a clueless reality television show star to be, you know, an elected leader. Yeah, they, they would. I think that Trump proved that. Uh, but Greg Gutfeld, who has a comedy show now on Fox News, reacted to the news, and it seems like he actually is kind of enthusiastic about Caitlyn Jenner being the governor of California. The issue for him is that she's transgender. He could barely contain his transphobia, and in his uh, monologue where he jokes about her running... You're going to see a consistent theme here uh, with his jokes. Now, I, I tried really hard to cover this in a regular segment where I just talked to the camera. Uh, I couldn't because there were so many contradictions and stupid things that him and his panelists said that I have to, like, react to each individual sentence. That's how bad it is. So I'm going to be pausing this quite a bit. Uh, but nonetheless, let's, let's, uh, let's let him take it away. Could we see Kate running the Golden State. Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor of California, hoping to unseat Gavin Newsom, who is as unpopular as Gavin Newsom. <laughs> Jenner, a Republican, has lived in California for over 50 years and considers herself fiscally conservative and socially liberal. No word if Democrats might nominate the Real Housewives of Orange County. <laughs> Caitlyn said in a statement for the past decade, we have seen the glimmer of the Golden State reduced by one party rule that places politics over progress, damn straight, and special interests over people. I agree. Sacramento needs an honest leader with a clear vision. Here, here. So he likes what she's saying. And of course, what she's saying is extremely, extremely stupid. First of all, she should be happy about one-party rule because even though the Democratic Party is objectively terrible when it comes to economic issues, as are Republicans, that party is the party that fought for her rights as a trans woman. And when it comes to special interests, she is a special interest. Elites in America, multimillionaires, billionaires, these are the special interests. So them being in positions of power, that's not going to make things better. As we've seen with Donald Trump, that just makes things a lot worse. And what is your vision? She has zero policies on her website, zero policies, but she says that Sacramento needs an honest leader with a clear vision. Caitlin, name one policy, just, just one, just name a policy, conservative, just name one policy. I'll wait. The fact that she knows that there's a difference between fiscal conservatism and uh, social liberalism, to me, is honestly shocking because I didn't know that she was aware of even these types of things. But this is someone who is obviously not qualified. She's clueless. This is a Trump supporter. She literally voted against her own self-interest 
and now she wants to run an entire state. What's your qualification? Oh, well, I was a reality show star for like 10 years and my family literally will not go away. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. Let's let's definitely vote for that. Apparently, this announcement made Newsom so nervous, he nearly dropped his shrimp fork at the French laundry. <laughs> the big question, will Jenner pull in the crucial ex-Olympian transgendered conservative reality show star voter demographic? <laughs> One thing is for sure, Democrats will have to get very creative in trying to argue that voting for her is transphobic. <laughs> Caitlin's appeal... Oh, stop, 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 stop. What? Caitlin's appeal could cross gender boundaries as easily as Caitlin crossed gender boundaries. <laughs> but here at Gutfeld, so the we are joke. so excited. We've already come up with some bumper sticker slogans for her. Jenner, better ideas and better hair. <laughs> Jenner, a governor that can keep up with the Kardashians. Nice. Jenner, strong enough for a man, but made for a woman. That's the second trans Jenner, uh, transgender she reference. she already beat the communists once. She can do it again. Jenner, bet you haven't been on a Wheaties box, you wimpy liberal. Jenner, I'm all woman, and I can still kick any man's ass on the 440. Finally, Jenner, make the switch. He just, he can't get over the fact that she's transgender. And it's funny because conservatives, like, they're really struggling here because on one hand, they know that Caitlyn Jenner is someone who would do exactly what the Republican Party wants, exactly what they want. But at the same time, they hate her because she's transgender. Now, for me, this is easy. I don't care about your identity. I care about what you're proposing and regardless if Caitlyn Jenner is transgender or cisgender, the policies that she'd implement would objectively hurt working people, would not be good for the LGBTQ plus community as a whole. Perhaps she would advance transgender uh, legislation, but I mean, it's California, so it's one of the better states. If you are a trans person, they at least acknowledge your existence, you know, contrary to more uh, Republican-leaning states. But... Uh, the panelist is now going to chime in here. And what they say, like, I, I saw most of this, but not all of it. What they're going to say, they don't even realize how hypocritical and contradictory their statements are. And nobody calls them out for this. Oh. Morgan, oh. I am so excited. <laughs> I might quit my job yeah. and work for her, except I'm greedy. <laughs> and I have a lifestyle that needs to be supported by vast wealth. <laughs> what? Is that really that funny? Does that really warrant them busting a gut like that? This is so weird. And I don't even get the cadence. It's kind of like the semi-serious tone that, that he's using, but it's like he kind of does seem enthusiastic about her. I, I just, I don't understand this. <laughs> You would be a great press secretary. You'd be a great press secretary. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. First of all, I think she's fabulous. Um, I think she's great. I'm, and uh, this proves, by the way, that Republicans don't care about identity politics. Yeah, no. Wait, wait for it, because she's going to say Republicans don't care about identity politics, meaning that, you know, they're not even phased by the fact 
that she's transgender. I mean, let's pretend like the uh, monologue that Greg Gutfeld uh, just did didn't make like five or six references to her being transgender. But nonetheless, we're not phased uh, by any of it. We don't care about identity politics. Wait for it because the hypocrisy is coming. Like, yeah. You can pick whatever you want to be. I also love that uh, Rick Grinnell may run against her, the first openly gay cabinet member. So we can have the first trans woman, uh, the first openly gay cabinet member running against each other in the Republican primary. Like, take that list. <laughs> you know, I'm just so proud of the fact that Republicans don't care about identity politics. Also, we'll have the first transgender and the first gay Republican running uh, against each other in this uh, gubernatorial campaign. But we're against identity politics. Oh my God, you fucking hypocrite. It took less than 10 seconds and see, she contradicted herself. Holy fucking shit. Here's the deal, Terry. The, what's people are going to focus on uh, on Caitlyn's identity, but not her. She has a Who's doing that? Caitlyn's appeal could cross gender boundaries as easily as Caitlyn crossed gender boundaries. <laughs> Jenner, make the switch. <laughs> Wicked sense of humor. Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed no, that. You, you told me that you actually know her because I was asking you. And you said well, we lived together for a yeah, while. Yeah. In the 70s. Well, uh, you know, I was. You know that I actually was her. Uh, we lived together in the in the seventies. <laughs> Uh, I got her into the decathlon. <laughs> I pulled some strings. This I know people. This explains a lot because yeah. I, I want to say something. First of all, I got I got to talk about this. Okay, the gut felled exclamation point <laughs> thing. Listen, now now it's all coming clear because when we were close, yes, you used to come over my place, and I knew he was coming because it's goofy Greg, and he'd knock on the door, and sometimes he'd be naked or in an outfit. <laughs> no, and, we, and, 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 and no, guys, this really and it th we, I'd throw the door open. And we'd greet each other and go like this with jazz hands. Gut fell. <laughs> and it was like exclamation point. And so I feel like you've robbed this yes. from us. Yes. And <laughs> this I, was supposed to be our thing. This was kind of. <laughs> it was kind of between us. And I, I feel like you've. And again, I'm happy for your success. But it, it, I can't say it, it hurts. Hurt. It hurts you. Caitlin, vote. If you could vote for her, would you vote for Caitlin? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I, I would not vote for her just because she's Caitlin. If she's got a great platform. Go for it. I, it'd be hard to put in. It's a working. What is her platform? Name a single policy that she is proposing besides tax cuts for the rich. Can you name any other policy? They must be so tired from all of that fake laughing. California, but hell yeah, go for it, man. Why yeah, not? That's the, the challenge. Cal it's it's Cal did, that's the problem. It's it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who was, it destroyed him. Yeah, it destroyed, it destroyed him. him. And he probably had a good shot. He ended up sleeping with the maid. Yeah, it got bad. Yeah. <laughs> it had a baby. Yeah, they had. That was the beautiful happy ending, though. <laughs> Silver lining. That was the beautiful happy ending, though. <laughs> oh my God. You're so funny, Greg Gutfeld. Oh my God. Stop it. There's a silver lining to a lot of infidelity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wonder what you two did in that fuck. Wait, could we could we do a reenactment of that? Yes, yes. What we did, what we did, was get each other through the war. Yes. Okay. Janice, and we'll just leave it at that. So, Janice, I grew up in California. I can't vote there, but I would vote there. I would vote twice. <laughs> no ID, right? Um, <laughs> See, Democrats commit voter fraud. <laughs> I'm a comedian. I'm a comedian. I'm so fucking funny. I'm a comedian. I'm so edgy. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I wish she was running against Cuomo. Oh. Oh. Wow. How about that? How about that? You know, you know, he'd try to kiss her. He would try to kiss her in the debate. Right. Good then, to see you, 
Caitlin, let me kiss you. Because he kisses everyone. Yes. It's an Italian thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you so much for explaining the joke. If she didn't explain that joke about him being a perv, I wouldn't have gotten it. I mean, it's not like this audience is politically engaged and knows about these sorts of scandals. So thank you for explaining that. I don't think they would have gotten it otherwise. Yeah, and you're racist if you, de you know, deny it. Right, or Fredo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Racist. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think it's great. Uh, I love that Joy Behar melted down today. Oh. All of Twitter melted down. Yeah. How could you tell yeah. with Joy, though? <laughs> right. She kept calling him, him he, really? and then kind of apologized at the end. But, you know, if she had done that, with she'd never do that with a Democrat. Yeah, right. That would never happen. She it probably it probably bothers her because it happens to or her. Whatever. She had the word whatever in her apology. Oh. The most heartfelt of apologies contain the word whatever. <laughs> I'll bet you a steak dinner. I'll probably forget it by right. then. That she will win. Look, because she's running as the anti-lockdown candidate. A lot of people yes. are pissed yeah. that they were all locked down. Their businesses had to fail. Well. You know, Newsom's out there having these fancy dinners. Yes. Because it was like his aide's birthday. You know, yeah. that occasion only comes once in a lifetime. Like, ridiculous. <laughs> but people, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, no to the funeral to say goodbye to your loved one. But, oh, but this I have to do. And uh, it, there really, there is a space for that right now. Um, and I just think it really is great because, again, a lot of the arguments people use to sort of silence Republicans are this, oh, that you're this bigot. She is not only transgender, she's also a lesbian. Mm -hmm. So, like, what are you gonna what are you gonna do there? And I think it's awesome. I love keeping up with the Kardashians. Chris Jenner was so mean. Yes. And yeah. I'm almost afraid to say that because I'm scared of Chris Jenner. Yeah. <laughs> she has better hair than Gavin Newsom. Yes. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and and she's an athlete. Athletes yeah. are never victim. They never. They never fall for the victimology. She's a humor. She doesn't mind if people make jokes about her. She's like, oh, that's funny. Like, I, had, I had no idea she was a lesbian because you know, that's what I identify. Uh, yeah. So that'll be great. <laughs> Again, this explains everything. <laughs> this explains everything. Back to the Fox. Right. We just went right to it. Oh no. That's what I'm right. thinking yeah. about right now. <laughs> hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here. To Fuck off, Sean Hannity. So that is conservative comedy. Any questions? After months of pushing lies and peddling misinformation about the severity of COVID-19 and even doubting the efficacy of the COVID vaccines themselves, Fox News, for whatever reason, finally decided to do something good as it relates to COVID-19. They actually decided to encourage their viewers to take the COVID vaccine. Shocking but this actually happened. So to assist them with this, they brought on country music star Brad Paisley to tell Fox's conspiracy theorist boomer audience, take the vaccine, don't be stupid. Here's just a quick snippet of the segment. Yeah, listen, uh, we wanted to have you on because you've launched this effort to kind of get people to get the vaccine. What prompted you to, to do this? Well, you know, we've got some great, plans for this summer and um nashville uh, we're actually playing the fourth of july which is going to be a really amazing sort of welcome back nashville show on the fourth and i've got some good friends at vanderbilt hospital and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people have uh, you know been talking to me about these that, this situation i just think it's our way back our industry nashville has been hit so hard. I mean, all of the, the things that we've gone through from the touring industry being completely crippled to just the amazing ways that 
fans have been deprived of live music. Um, I'm I'm just really hopeful that this is the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, I'm going to play this uh, public service announcement and uh, let people see it. Empty seats can't cheer. They don't tailgate and they don't know fight songs. Empty seats don't sing during seventh inning stretches. And they don't know stats or superstitions. There's a soundtrack for places like this, and it isn't made in a studio. It's made by you. So when it's your turn to get the vaccine, be a fan. Take the shot. It's well done. I I tell you, Brad, I do hear from people... um that they're either afraid of it, number one, um, they're not sure that they want to do it, um, and or that they have to do it. And when, when you run into those folks, what do, you, what do you tell them? Well, I mean, look, obviously, this is the kind of thing that I think folks think was quickly thrown together and maybe not researched. But this is a 10-year effort on the part of these manufacturers that was luckily ready for this we have you know i i uh i've done a lot of research myself and it's a really scary thing to think about two things one is that something was thrown out there which this wasn't and the other thing is that this pandemic goes on indefinitely and completely changes our lives i mean i am so sick of wearing a mask i'm so sick of missing my fans and knowing that these these doctors have something that can change this is something that I'm really passionate about. I almost never say this, but um, I'm going to say it. Fox News. Good job. That was actually an excellent, responsible, fact based segment about COVID-19. Is that the first time they've ever run a responsible science-based segment on COVID-19? Like, I'm wondering, because all throughout the pandemic, I've been having to counter the misinformation that they've been spreading, but yet, according to YouTube, they're the authoritative news source, but I'm not. But, I mean, that's neither here here nor there. They've been spreading so many lies about the pandemic that it's honestly shocking to see them say something correct about COVID-19. But since they have, you know, built up their audience and led their audience to believe that, you know, the official narrative about COVID-19 is wrong, well, what do you what do you think happened? Their audience predictably revolted against this segment. So they uploaded the segment to YouTube, and as you can see, there are four times the amount of dislikes as there are likes. And as you can expect, the uh, Fox News viewership sounded off in the comment section as well. Uh, This person says, the more they push it, the more I am convinced not to take it. That's definitely a very smart way to determine whether or not you should do things that are beneficial to your own health and safety. Uh, This person says, maybe he can write a country song about his love for Fauci and the jab. Got him. Never let the government stick stuff into your body. Once you take it, you can never untake it. Yes, because the vaccine, according to this person, is uh, more scary than getting COVID-19 itself. To all the people on here that gave a thumbs down, awesome. You are awake and will not be led astray. Uh, This person says, we had peer pressure from our friends when we were young to try drugs. Now we have peer pressure from famous people and athletes to jab our arm with an unknown substance. This person says, just say no. Remember that campaign? I say we bring it back. And this account is literally named Think For Yourself. 
I mean, it's just, it's too perfect. Uh, hey, Brad, I've done my research too. And as a free American, I'll stick with my healthy lifestyle, vitamin D3, zinc, and exercise. For me and others, this combination has been monumental in fighting COVID-19. Good day, sir. So will he accept responsibility for all medical expenses if one of his fans has an adverse reaction due to taking it because he encouraged them to? So, I mean, you get the point. And there were a bunch of people that found it insulting that Fox News thought they had to bring on a country star to convince conservatives to take the vaccine. And, you know, the assumption to them was they're so out of touch with, like, normal people that they would expect us to listen to a celebrity. But aren't you the same folks who voted for a reality television show star to be president? Yeah. So... Forgive me for actually giving Fox News a pass for thinking that dipshits like you would only listen to someone who is very famous because, I mean, you voted for Donald Trump. And then before Trump, conservatives voted for Ronald Reagan. So yes, they had to bring on a country star to tell you to not be stupid and do things that's good for your own health. Perhaps that is what's needed. But I mean, between the stupidity that we just read and the greed of pharmaceutical giants who are fighting tooth and nail to block countries from the global south from manufacturing their own generic COVID vaccines for people who actually desperately want to take them, you know, it just feels like human beings aren't long for this world. And I know that saying that sounds overly doomer, and it is to an extent, but it feels like we're on the precipice of extinction as a species and even if we know that, we're doing everything we can to accelerate our own extinction. It just, it feels like human beings are rooting against themselves. And I say that based on the actions, right? I mean, there are very common sense things that we can do to stop the spread of a highly contagious, deadly disease. And even the bare minimum, conservatives just, they fought against it at every step of the way. We locked down. Well, they don't like lockdowns. Okay, so we reopen up, but we are more cautious. We institute social distancing and require masks. Well, they don't like the masks because that, to them, is tyranny. Okay, well, if you don't like the masks, if you don't like the lockdowns, then the vaccines, certainly that's what's going to end the pandemic. Uh, but they don't like the vaccines either. Vaccines are bad. Okay, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. It's a fucking pandemic, so we don't have very many options. There are things that you do during a pandemic that's recommended by the experts and scientists and epidemiologists. If you don't like all of those options, then the default thing that you want us to do is to just pretend like the pandemic isn't a thing. And if folks die, they die. Fuck it. Who cares? I mean, what's what's the takeaway? I mean, look at climate change, for example. We can't e even solve a pandemic, but climate change, an issue much more complicated, magnitudes more difficult to solve. They don't even acknowledge that climate change exists when we're seeing more and more severe weather patterns, more wildfires. It just, again, I have this overwhelming sense of dread and doom. And it feels like human beings don't want to exist. We're our own worst enemies, right? If an alien species discovered Earth and they invaded, we'd be helping them to exterminate all of the human beings. It's just, we're stupid. <laughs> human beings might just be too stupid to survive. 
And that's really sad. Uh, but look at the comments. I mean, maybe we shouldn't read too much in the comments because, you know, you will definitely lose faith in humanity if you if you stay too long in the YouTube comment section, particularly uh, under conservative videos. But it's just, I don't know what else to say. Maybe I'm doom and gloom, but the pandemic has truly made me lose whatever minimal amount of faith that I had left in humanity. It's just, it's gone. Now I have no faith in humanity. Any shred of optimism I felt about whether or not human beings could come together and fight climate change, that's gone. I, I think it's just not possible now. And I'm grappling with the implications of uh, of this realization. You know, what do we do? How do we fight knowing that human beings are so self-defeating in every fucking thing that they do and it's infuriating? Like, how do we go forward? knowing how self-destructive we are. And I don't know. I don't know. But it's just, this is really fucking depressing. And it just seems like the pandemic is going to exist forever and nothing will be done about climate change and the situation will continue to worsen and worsen and worsen. And that's it. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't want this to be depressing, but, you know, I can't just look at the stupidity any longer and laugh at it. This has real negative implications on not just American society, but global health. I mean, and it's frustrating that you have folks dying, begging, desperate for vaccines in India right now because their right-wing fascist government is also failing them. And in America, you have idiots with an abundance of vaccines. And they're actually free. And they refuse to take them. It's just very, very depressing, to say the least. But don't let me rub off on you. If you have optimism for human beings, and you don't think that we're just marching straight off a cliff towards the apocalypse, then don't let me rub off on you. Don't listen to me, if you are still hopeful. But I've been drained my hopefulness, my optimism, I don't feel it. And I hope it comes back, but I'm not optimistic that my optimism will come back. As COVID vaccinations continue to tick up in the United States, countries like India are seeing an absolutely brutal second wave with more than 300,000 new cases per day, which has, of course, led to a lot of problems. Shortages of hospital beds. Patients are now dying without oxygen. It's just absolutely gut-wrenching and horrific. And on the screen, you're seeing drone footage from New Delhi's mass cremation site that they actually had to construct because they didn't know what else to do with all of the bodies from deaths due to COVID-19. So, I mean, you see this footage and it's obvious that had India been able to vaccinate at least as many people as the U.S. has or as the U.K. has, then the situation hopefully wouldn't have been as bad. So, obviously, the conclusion is we need a people's vaccine. And Jessica Corbett passionately argues for this in an article in Common Dreams, which I'll link you to down below. But part of the reason why there isn't a people's vaccine is because of the greed of pharmaceutical giants who recently dispatched an army of lobbyists to block the production of generic COVID vaccines, as reported by Li Fang of The Intercept. And before we go further, it's not just the lack of a vaccine that's leading to an increase in COVID cases. I mean, this surge can be attributed to incompetence from uh, India's far-right fascistic leader Narendra Modi. On top of that, 
a lot of cities in India are densely populated, so there's a number of factors. But of course, having a vaccine, having the ability to vaccinate for months, or at least as long as the United States had, would make the situation better. Now, in an article for The Guardian, journalist Stephen Barani explains how the world is desperate for more vaccines, but patents from pharmaceutical giants have actually stopped countries in the global south, like India, from manufacturing their own generic COVID-19 vaccines. Stephen explains, many governments and organizations back the idea of opening up production. India and South Africa have asked the WTO to suspend patent protections to allow other companies to produce existing vaccines and drugs, but they have been blocked by rich nations. Former world leaders and Nobel laureates have called for suspending patents and coordinating production across the world, the kind of global effort that eliminated smallpox and polio in the 20th century, but so far, their efforts have been unsuccessful. So this begs the question, why aren't these countries manufacturing their own generic versions of the COVID-19 vaccine? Why are they waiting on Pfizer and Moderna to, you know, manufacture enough to distribute them across the world? It's going to take forever if we rely on just a couple of companies. Wouldn't it be more efficient if we just have multiple manufacturing uh, companies around the world make these drugs to distribute them to countries that desperately need them? And the answer is, of course, but companies like Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, they don't want anyone else to manufacture their vaccines, the vaccines that they have uh, control over, because they want to be the sole manufacturers because that's how they make a lot of money off of it. It's more lucrative for them to be the sole manufacturer of the COVID vaccines that they have rather than allowing these other companies to manufacture generic vaccines because then they'd miss out on that money so i mean this is becoming a bigger issue the need and demand for a people's vaccine is growing and just a couple of weeks ago i posted a video on this channel that's super long where i talk about bill gates's role in global vaccine apartheid how he helped perpetuate the system of global apartheid where the folks who want a vaccine in other countries can't get it because richer countries are effectively hoarding the vaccines. So if you watch that video, I go over a New Republic article that explains his role in this, but he was asked a follow-up about this and, and whether or not now we see the need for the vaccines. Uh, shouldn't it be the case that the IP rights are waived so other countries can really quickly rush to you know manufacture these generic COVID vaccines because they have people dying in the streets? And he proceeded to double down and outright lie. And as John Keeley of Salon writes, Bill Gates, one of the world's richest men and most powerful philanthropists, was the target of criticism from social justice campaigners on Sunday after arguing that lifting patent protections on COVID-19 vaccine technology and sharing recipes with the world to foster a massive ramp up in manufacturing and distribution despite a growing international call to do exactly that is a bad idea. Directly asked during an interview with Sky News if he thought it would be helpful to have vaccine recipes be shared, Gates quickly answered no. Asked to explain why not, Gates, whose massive fortune as founder of Microsoft relies largely on intellectual property laws that turned his software innovations into tens of billions of dollars in personal wealth, said, well, there's only so many vaccine factories in the world and people are very serious about the safety of vaccines. And so moving something that had never been done, moving a vaccine, say, from a Johnson & Johnson factory into a factory in India. It's novel. It's only because of our grants and expertise 
that that can happen at all. The thing that's holding things back in terms of the global vaccine rollout continued gates is not intellectual property. It's not like there's some idle vaccine factory with regulatory approval that makes magically safe vaccines. You know, you've got to do the trial on these things. Every manufacturing process needs to be looked at in a very careful way. Critical advocates for robust and immediate change to intellectual property protections at the World Trade Organization when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccines, however, issued scathing indictments of Gates' defense of the status quo. Nick Dearden, executive director of Global Justice Now, one of the lead partner groups in an international coalition calling for the WTO patent waivers at a crucial meeting of the world body next month, characterized Gates' remarks and the ideological framework behind them as disgusting. Who appointed this billionaire head of global health, asked Dearden. Oh yeah, he did. So this is absolutely morally reprehensible, and he's a liar. You have countries like South Africa and India begging. They're saying we have the capacity, and there's a strong demand for these COVID vaccines because our citizens are dying. They're literally dying without oxygen. So all we're asking is for you to give us the ability, the recipes, to manufacture our own generic vaccines so we can save lives. And this billionaire oligarch who unilaterally appointed himself the head of global public health said, mm, no, I say no. I say that lifting the patent obstacles and waiving them even temporarily, that's not going to help the situation. So... He's seriously arguing that it's better to just have three companies manufacture the vaccines rather than having generic alternatives throughout the globe being manufactured. Is that seriously the argument that he's making? Now, I watched the actual video interview and I didn't play it because it's from Sky News and I don't know if there'd be any copyright issues with them because I've never played a clip from Sky News to my knowledge. Um... But there's no follow-up from the interviewer, just a softball question, no follow-up, and he just lies casually with a straight face. It's, it's unreal. It's unreal. But to be fair, Bill Gates isn't alone in perpetuating global apartheid because on the campaign trail, Joe Biden promised to lift any and all barriers that would prevent the manufacturing of generic COVID vaccines. In an interview with uh, Adi Barkin, he was asked this question, would you lift these IP barriers? Would you provide uh, other countries with waivers needed to manufacture their own generic COVID vaccines? And this was his response. Quote, it lacks any human dignity what we're doing, Biden said of his predecessor's refusal to participate in global vaccine initiatives. So the answer is yes, 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 yes. And it's not only a good thing to do, it's overwhelmingly in our interest to do. However, since taking office in January, the Biden administration has upheld Trump's opposition to India and South Africa's proposal to temporarily waive sections of the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, a step that would allow generic manufacturers to replicate vaccine formulas and bolster global supply. So, there was a segment from CNBC about a month or so ago, and apparently Biden's administration told a reporter that they were looking into uh, whether or not they would temporarily waive the uh, IP rights so that way this can actually happen. And uh, time's ticking. Where's your answer, Joe Biden? On the campaign trail, you said yes, 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 yes. Five yeses. You said that it's... Uh, it lacks human dignity, what Trump was doing, because he 
wouldn't waive the IP rights. And now you're doing the same fucking thing. How much more deliberation is necessary? How much more time do you need to decide whether or not to do the humane thing? And then we have folks like Bill Gates, billionaire oligarchs whose organization is inextricably linked to the World Health Organization dictating unilaterally the terms of vaccine distribution. I say this every single time I talk about vaccines, but I'm going to say it again because it's really important. If you are a greedy American or a greedy British person and you're satisfied because you got your COVID vaccine and you don't really care what happens in India or South Africa because you have your vaccine and you're protected, understand that pandemics don't work that way and it's only a matter of time before a new strain, a new mutation emerges that is resistant to the vaccines. If that happens, all the progress that we've made getting Americans and people in the UK vaccinated will be undone. All because we're protecting the profits of pharmaceutical giants like Pfizer and Moderna. It is truly just antithetical to a, a thriving human society. This is all the evidence that you need that capitalism and neoliberal governance has failed. It has failed human beings because it is not giving us the capacity to adequately address a highly contagious, deadly pandemic. And if this doesn't turn every single person into a socialist, then I don't know what will. So um, I can't believe that um, Bill Gates is so brazen, but he, uh, he tripled down here. I'd say doubled down, but he already you know, was really testy with reporters when they followed up beforehand about him defending the uh, IP rights of these uh, companies. But, you know, if, uh, if things go south, if we have a new strain that's resistant to the vaccines, thank folks like Bill Gates, thank folks like Joe Biden, who went back on his promise to waive these, uh, these uh, IP protections to make sure that folks around the world can actually make their own generic vaccines because that's the only way logistically and feasibly that we will vaccinate the entire human population before a new strain pops up. So Cori Bush appeared on CNN for an interview and she was asked a really important question. She was asked if a criminal justice bill came up but it excluded ending qualified immunity, would she be willing to compromise, and I was delighted to hear her answer. She said, quite frankly, no, I'm not. This is what I want to hear. I want to see progressives in Congress make demands. I want to see them draw lines in the sand. I want to see them plant their feet firmly in the ground and say, I can't support this if it doesn't meet my requirements, my criteria. And I think that it's pretty common sense to have a bill uh, related to criminal justice that doesn't include an end to qualified immunity is absurd. I mean, this really is one of those issues that has support across the aisle, right? So there's no reason for any criminal justice bill to not have qualified immunity. So I have no issue with her answer there. However, there was another question that the CNN host asked to Cori Bush, and her answer here wasn't necessarily that great to me um she asked okay so if you have these demands and whatnot will the squad actually bind together and make their demands have teeth will you stop bills from getting passed in the way that joe manchin does 
if it is the case that it doesn't meet your demands. Uh, to put it lightly, Cori Bush's answer here killed my soul. Take a look. The question I think Congress is facing right now is, would you accept a qualified immunity alternative that would hold police departments accountable if it means getting the George Floyd uh, police reform bill through Congress, even if it's not 100% of what you initially wanted? You know, right now we need to end qualified immunity, period. You know, that's my stance. Uh, we So, so you are not willing to a, compromise on that? So we compromise on so much, you know, we compromise, we die. We compromise, we die. We compromise, we die. You know, I'm, I didn't come to Congress to compromise on what keeps us, what could keep us alive because it holds police officers specifically accountable because the thing is this. If you don't hurt people, if you don't kill people, if you if you are just and fair in your work, then does qualified and do you need the qualified immunity anyway? You know, so I so the thing is, this all of this safety net, the safety net shouldn't be there. But let me say this. Where are the, all of these special protections for, for nurses and and for other people in other positions that do very dangerous work? That's just trying to help people. So, no, I will not compromise on that. We need to end qualified immunity. And the reason why we, there is this this um, this open lane for compromise is because they see that people will do it. I, I didn't come. St. Louis did not send me here. St. Louis being number one for f police murder in the country per capita and have been that way for years. The people did not send me here to save their lives by falling down on the one thing that we needed the most. No. And I, you know, you know, I don't want to belabor this and I hear the passion in your voice on this issue, but if it comes back to the house with a compromise on qualified immunity, would you vote against that? I'm not prepared to I'm not prepared to support that. Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia has essentially, uh, you know, used what seems to be a veto power against a lot of progressive priorities, including some of the ones that you've uh, mentioned. But in the, in the House, Democrats have this two seat majority. There are uh, six members of the squad of which you are a part. Uh, what's stopping you from flexing that same power for your agenda? You just said you would vote against a compromise on qualified immunity. Are you prepared and the rest of the squad prepared to use that kind of veto power that you have if you vote as a block? You know, it, it, I'm prepared to do whatever is needed to make sure that we, you know, that we uh, that our agenda moves forward. Um, but I can't speak for the rest of the squad members. At the end of the day, my sister Ayanna, Rep. Ayanna Presley says it all the time. You vote alone and you're voting for your districts. So you're voting for the people who voted you in. You're voting um, their needs and their. If Ayanna Presley actually said that. You should never take her advice again, Cori Bush. <laughs> that is not a good way to get anything accomplished in Congress. You vote alone. I understand that there is a need to make sure that you are meeting the demands and the needs of your constituents. Nobody would deny that, but there's a lot of overlap when it comes to what your constituents need. Every district in America would benefit with Medicare for All. 
Every single black and brown person in every single district in America would benefit by seeing qualified immunity come to an end. So, sure, you have to make decisions at the behest of your constituents. But if you ever want your demands to have any teeth whatsoever, if you don't bind together, you're going to accomplish absolutely nothing. There's a reason why whenever something passes the House, every single article that talks about it says, well, it's effectively going to be dead on arrival in the Senate. Because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they always bind together. And they're so willing to torpedo bills that it's just this default assumption that oh well this is this isn't going to pass because joe manchin isn't going to support it now i'm not saying that you should be uh you know defeatist and overly obstructionist and end up stopping good things from getting passed because they don't meet 100 percent of what you want but there there comes a time when you have to fight and if you're not willing to bind together with other progressive lawmakers you're never going to get anything that you want now, I can rationalize the explanation that a lot of them gave for not blocking the COVID relief bill because there were a lot of progressives that were upset that they didn't, didn't block it in the House when uh, the minimum wage of $15 an hour was excluded, myself included. Um, but I get them saying, look, we just we needed to get it out as soon as possible. We had to pass it. People needed that money, and, and we couldn't wait any longer. Short wasn't what I wanted, but we had to get it out there. First of all, that's not necessarily what progressives are saying. Oftentimes, they praise that bill as being incredibly progressive, one of the most progressive pieces of legislation in decades, even though it did fall short. But uh, if you're going to say that about that bill, the COVID relief bill, I can give you a pass if you truly believed that we just had to get that out as soon as possible. But when it comes to Biden's infrastructure bill, this is going to be a test for them. If they don't actually make their demands crystal clear, then uh, it shows you that they're not going to be very effective. Now, part of wielding your power effectively, there's a learning curve to that, right? You have to build up your confidence. You have to learn what to do, how to make deals, how to bargain. So it's going to take time. I'm not expecting them to be strategic masterminds as soon as they get into Congress. But there are some things that I think are pretty basic, common sense things. And binding together is the one thing. Because if you don't bind together, then the squad, you know, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, it's not really going to be threatening to corporate Democrats. They're going to continue to steamroll you. And we desperately need substantial changes. Now, what worries me is that the obvious weakness from progressive lawmakers, it is hurting other progressives who are running for Congress. I've seen so many people post online, oh, well, this is why uh, I don't even care if Nina Turner gets elected, which is is uh, it's going to make my head explode to think that people actually have this conclusion. If anything, you know, uh, you should fight harder to get someone like Nina Turner in there who could be a possible leader. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people think, look, here's the thing. If you're going to run as a Democrat, this is going to happen every single time. You're going to be overly deferential to Democratic Party leadership. And, it, you know, the only way to actually get progressive lawmakers in Congress that are going to fight and not uh, be subordinate to the Democratic Party's demands and, and what the leadership of the party wants is you have to get someone in there who is either an independent or part of a third party. And to that, my answer is mm, my criticism of 
Corey Bush and members of the squad like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that they don't fight as much as they should. I think that also is applicable to Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, I think he is more effective legislatively speaking. I think that Bernie Sanders, you know, now being in a position of power where he is the uh, budget committee chairman, sure, he can force votes on things like a $15 an hour minimum wage. But by and large, he still has been pretty deferential to Democratic Party leadership. And sure, it would be great to see a Green Party in Congress or some Socialist Party member in Congress. But the reality is that once you get to Congress, you're still going to have to caucus with the Democratic Party. You're not going to be able to caucus with the Republican Party if you're a socialist, right? You're not going to find any common ground with them. So you're still going to get assigned to committees by the Democratic Party. You're going to caucus with them. You're going to try to build support for your legislation, finding co-sponsors within the Democratic Party. So the same issues that make members of the Democratic Party seemingly weak in the face of Democratic Party leadership and the establishment within the Democratic Party, that's going to be applicable to members of a third party or an independent. I mean, we see it with Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, you know, we see this and it's easy to get disappointed, but I don't want you to take away that the situation is hopeless. I want you to take away that this is more evidence that we need an inside-outside strategy. There needs to be more organizations on the ground pushing for change. And we shouldn't look to elected progressives as the leaders who are going to spearhead these movements. Inside, outside, that's the key strategy. This is what everyone will say. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, Cornell West. You can't just, you know, vote people in Congress and expect everything to be copacetic, expect them to fight for you, because that's not the way that this works. We've seen with Obama that when we just like vote someone in power and expect them to do the right thing, it's not going to work out that way. And I'm not in any way comparing, you know, members of the squad to Obama because that's that's different. Obama actually was a corrupt sellout who took money from Wall Street and large multinational corporations. Whereas members of the squad, I think that the reason why they're ineffectual is because they don't know how to wield their power. They're, they're relatively new when it comes to Congress. And that's not to make excuses for them. They should be fighting harder. But I think that what this gives us the motivation to do or should motivate us to do is build up that pressure on the outside. Sure, continue to elect more progressives on the inside and make sure that we do everything in our power to expand the number of elected progressives in Congress. But on top of that, we can't like expect them to just be the leaders. We have to be the leaders organized labor and uh, organized socialist organizations actually have to be the leaders. It should be the gra grassroots that dictates the terms, not actual members of Congress. This has to be bottom up. And I think that when we acknowledge that and we actually learn how things are changed, you know, fundamentally and comprehensively in this country, then, you know, what's happening will make sense. But of course, you know, I do expect better from members of the squad, and I've been incredibly disappointed, particularly in this congressional session, because now is the time when the squad, for the very first time, actually can kind of, like, show everyone who they are, and they've obviously not stepped up to the challenge, which is really disappointing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think that they're sellouts. That doesn't mean that I think we should waste our time dedicating energy into primarying them. I mean, everyone should just be automatically primaried to begin with, so that is a moot point, but we shouldn't get disappointed. Rather, we have to apply pressure from the outside. And if you are in Cori Bush's district and you want her to fight for you and do certain things, then 
you know, you have to call up her office and, and work with them and not just, you know, um, retreat and think, okay, well, I voted in Cori Bush or AOC and they didn't do what I want. So I'm going to, I'm going to give up. No, if anything, if you're disappointed, you should be even more engaged and actually motivate people in your area to apply pressure. Again, outside, inside strategy. This is what we have to do. So, I mean, look, I'm not going to go out of my way to beat up on Cori Bush, AOC, or members of the squad. Uh, to me, if I see that I'm disappointed in them, which I am, I'm not going to go out of my way to tear them down. I'm going to try to build them up. I think that people like Cori Bush and AOC, Jamal Bowman, members of the squad, their intentions are absolutely pure, but it's easy to get misguided and, you know, to be afraid of what can happen if you actually are out of line. The Democratic Party can very easily crush you. And so speaking up is something that's difficult. It requires a lot of courage, but honestly, all it takes is one. All it takes is one person to be a leader and to be a wrecking ball and to rally the troops and the members of uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus leadership, Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal, they very clearly don't want to rock the boat. These are good people who are pushing for good things, but they obviously don't want to rock the boat. And we need someone who's going to rock the boat. So my hopes is that when Nina Turner gets in there, she actually will continue to be a firebrand and apply pressure to the Democratic Party establishment. Because, you know, it's not the case that uh, going along to get along is going to benefit you. You might have a longer career in politics, but whether or not you actually accomplish what you set out to accomplish, you know, uh, doing what you've been doing, just going along to get along isn't the way to, uh, you know, uh, do the things you wanted to do. So I'll leave that there. You know, this ain't it. If you vote alone, then you are going to be uh, absolutely ineffective in Congress. And if you truly want to accomplish things and get what you want, you can't listen to what Ayanna Presley said here. You've got to bind together and uh, block votes, block legislation if it doesn't include what you want. Do exactly what the corporate Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are doing. Otherwise, you're not really going to be taken seriously you'll be irrelevant as it relates to legislation and we don't want that to be the case it's early in this congressional session so what i would say that progressive lawmakers should do is turn it around and flex that muscle that they have because they do have it they just haven't shown it yet and that's frustrating but that's what they need to do if they want to get what they uh set out to accomplish actually codified into law and i'll leave that there President Joe Biden has passed the 100-day milestone, and a lot of folks are kind of stepping back and reflecting on everything that he's done and hasn't done thus far. I do have a video coming out on Saturday at 8 a.m. where I kind of give you my comprehensive breakdown. It's not an exhaustive list of every single good and negative thing that Joe Biden has done. Having said that, though, I do try to be really objective and um, go through a lot of the most significant things uh, that this administration has done. Having said that, though, putting aside my breakdown and my grading of Joe Biden's uh, performance thus far, members of Congress are also speaking out. And Republicans, of course, obviously hate every single thing that he's doing, even if it is in their interest and what they want, uh, because they're just hacks. But in theory, if somebody in Congress is going to be the most critical of Joe Biden, I would expect that to be the progressives however they don't actually seem that displeased with joe biden and uh actually aoc not necessarily in a leadership position but widely viewed as the leader of the squad at least she actually uh said that she believes that joe biden has done a great job in fact he's exceeded 
her expectations because she was expecting him to be a lot more conservative than he is in actuality. Take a look at what she had to say. One thing that I will say is that I do think that um, the Biden administration and President Biden has definitely exceeded expectations that progressives had. Uh, you know, I'll be frank, I think a lot of us expected a much more conservative administration. Um, and I think that his not only what has ultimately come out, but the active invitation and willingness and collaboration uh, with progressives in his first 100 days um, or almost 100 days uh, has been very impressive. And so while there are very, you know, there are areas where there are just plain areas of disagreement, um, I think that the the actual conduct of the administration has absolutely been in good faith, but not just in good faith, but active incorporation of progressive legislation. And also for those of us individually, you know, I can at least say that um, there has been a lot of openness and willingness and flexibility in incorporating uh, many of our goals, requests, demands, etc. Okay, that's going to be a hard disagree from me, AOC. Um, listen, I think that if I'm going to be charitable here, if your expectations are already really low, like if your expectations are below the floor, then any one good thing that that individual does that's pleasantly surprising, you could see that as, oh, wow, I didn't expect this. You know, I am surprised. Therefore, my expectations have been uh, exceeded. But even by that standard, has Joe Biden exceeded my expectations just personally? No. He's met my expectations because my expectations were there'd be a couple of good things, but a lot of really bad and harmful things, namely as it relates to foreign policy and immigration. So I don't like that she's saying this because here's the thing. If you want to give Joe Biden credit and try to cultivate goodwill with this administration so that way he hears you out and he factors you into the equation when it comes to legislation, I understand that from a strategic perspective. But what AOC did here is actually incredibly harmful because now Joe Biden, he's going to see this. He's going to think, oh, great. Progressives are uh, satisfied. I exceeded their expectations. I didn't just meet their expectations. I exceeded their expectations. So therefore, um, they're appeased. I can uh, not listen to what they have to say because they're already satisfied. We're 100 days in and this group who I expected to give me the most trouble is already satisfied. Wow, that's that's fantastic. And AOC, you know, she basically speaks for the progressives. So, um, yeah, that's not what we want. We want Joe Biden to take away. Now, it is the case that I don't believe we should come off as petulant children who are unreasonable, unwilling to ever give Joe Biden credit for anything that he does. I mean, sure, applaud him Give him credit where it's due when he does good things, but don't censor yourself. Don't go out of your way to compliment him, especially if those compliments aren't warranted. Has Joe Biden done good things? Yes, he has done good things. I think he's handled the COVID-19 pandemic far better than Donald Trump. But at the same time, there's a lot of things in this country right now that need to be fixed. And to say that is an oversimplification because... There's a crisis right now when it comes to healthcare. Uh, we are facing climate catastrophe. So I'm sorry, just like having your low expectations exceeded, that's not any reason to be excited um, or give him credit for that. I'm sorry. It's just that's not the case. 
Um, now, as much as the uh, mainstream media tries to pretend as if they didn't hear the more radical things that AOC says, they definitely heard this. And they've been asking other lawmakers about what AOC said. And thankfully, Nina Turner had a much better response. She basically said, I mean, you can give Joe Biden credit for the good things that he does. But of course, we should have the courage to ask for more. But uh, on uh, CNN, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, was asked to comment on AOC's remarks. And she not only agreed with AOC, but she took it a step further. And she gave him a grade of an A. Um, one of your progressive, uh, your fellow progressives in the House, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, says that he's exceeded her expectations and expectations for progressives. Do you agree? I do. Uh, you know, I think that this has been a really interesting time for us to see how the progressive movement at large, all the progressive voters, young voters, voters of color that came out and turned out for the president in November, helping us to win the White House, the Senate and the House uh, and the pandemic and the way in which it has just um, really sh shined such a bright light on all the in inequalities that have existed. I think President Biden has risen to the moment and I really do give him an A in what he's done so far. It's been bold, it's been progressive, it's been what the country needs. He hasn't shied away from it, he has leaned into it and we're hoping that the same continues to happen as we go through the process to pass the Jobs and Families Plan. I mean, that said, I know you haven't been completely on board with all of his plans and you've expressed some disappointment, the refugee cap, for instance. And in terms of his public polling, it's about how he's handling immigration, that he gets some of his lowest marks. So what do you need to hear from him tonight? Well, on immigration, I have spoken with the White House directly about this. They are going to fix the refugee cap issue. Um, you know, I... I think it was a big mistake. I've told them that. I said it publicly. I said it privately. But they're going to fix it. Um, on immigration, the president has, you know, he, he's sort of gone back and forth. He released a very strong day one immigration bill, and we really applaud him for that. It's a great vision coming from the top. But if we are going to be successful, Democrats cannot do what Democrats and Republicans have done for too long, which is, you know, use immigrants as a political football and run away from the issue or cave in to people who are using immigrants as a political football. So I want to hear from him that he is deeply committed to getting this done and that he's going to lean into the incredible, um, you know, promise that immigrants have. And I, as an immigrant member of Congress, of course, feel very strongly that we contribute so much and we want to be recognized for that contribution and for the values that America holds so dear. They are so grounded in welcoming immigrants. Pramila Jayapal is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. This is supposed to be the loudest opposition within the Democratic Party to conservative leadership. And I've got to read back the quote. I think President Biden has risen to the moment, and I really do give him an A in what he's done so far. It's been bold, it's been progressive, it's been what the country needs. This is borderline parody. Um, I don't like to grade or rate things on a scale from 1 to 10, A through F, but if I had to grade Joe Biden, I would give him an F. 
a D minus to be charitable. And the reason why I give him an F is not to, you know, uh, detract from the positive things that he's done, his positive handling of COVID-19. But, you know, if you are grading a paper, for example, and you score 55%, that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you got every single question on that quiz wrong. You got some questions right. You did good in some areas. But ultimately, you still failed overall because you didn't grasp the material enough. You didn't do what was needed to do to pass that test. So I would like to know what criteria Pramila Jayapal uses to grade Joe Biden, because if the standards are this low, then imagine what Bernie Sanders uh, would have been graded as. Would he have gotten like an A++++? Would our heads all collectively exploded if he said the words Medicare for all on a national stage? I mean, listen, you can acknowledge that Joe Biden at his State of the Union, he adopted the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders. He said healthcare is a right. But having said that, though, I don't necessarily care what he says. I care what he does. And to say that he's met the mo he's risen to the moment, he still doesn't support Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic. And it's worse than that, actually. He moved away from a public option and a public option is trash right? It's going to be overburdened and underfunded. Republicans are going to point to its inevitable failure as proof that government-run healthcare doesn't work. But I mean, it's still better than the status quo currently, but he isn't even proposing a public option. I mean, he's seemingly moved away from it. Not a people about a public option. But you say he's risen to the moment? Are, are we serious? Are, are we just overly naive? Representative Jayapal, you are the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You set the tone for the rest of progressives in Congress. You saying this is a signal to everyone in Congress, members of the squad, progressives, to unilaterally disarm, let your guard down because Joe Biden is based. Joe Biden has risen to the moment. He's bold. He's progressive. He's exactly what this country needs. <laughs> and even the CNN host... It seems like she disagrees with you because she noted correctly so that Joe Biden has a high approval rating, but where he gets the lowest marks is when it comes to immigration. And Pramila Jayapal correctly identified his unwillingness to uh, lift the refugee cap. Now he's postponed it. He's gotten a lot of pushback for that. But that's not the only issue. Pramila, the reason why he's getting low scores when it comes to immigration is because what he's been doing has been comparable to Trump. There are children in cages. Are you just pretending like that's not happening? So it's deeply frustrating because what this is doing is you're poisoning the well for future progressives. There's a lot of new progressives that are right now launching their campaigns and they're trying to encourage people to donate, to, uh, you know, canvas for them, sign up and volunteer for them. And the takeaway when progressives see things like this, see you just capitulate and die like that in a hundred days, they're going to think, well, why am I going to give up my hard-earned dollars to these new progressives running if they're going to just get elected and immediately roll over and die, not even try to fight for a second? Like, do you understand? We need to see a spark. We have to see some signs of life within progressive lawmakers, but it's just they they won't fight they they're not doing it and i know that the most popular response that i'll see to disappointment with the squad of people who are really genuinely demoralized and i don't blame them for this is uh, well you know this this proves it uh, you just i can't vote for anyone who's running for congress as a democrat except even if you were able 
to elect someone from a third party, a socialist or green party, that would be really difficult to pull off in the first place. But even if that were the case, I mean, if you're an independent in Congress, you still have to caucus with the Democrats. I said this in my last video about the squad. Uh, you, you can't caucus with the Republicans. You have to caucus with the Democratic Party and work with leadership. So the same institutional factors that seem to not necessarily co-opt, but silence members of the squad or, you know, uh, bully them into obedience, for lack of a better word, that's going to apply to anyone else. And if you don't believe me, look at Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is not a member of the Democratic Party. He's been an independent for uh, forever. And uh, you can see he's overly deferential to Joe Biden. Is it because they're friends? I don't know. But it's the institution itself that makes it very difficult. So I've said this once, I'll say it again. The key ingredient is that um, we can't just keep electing folks and expecting them on their own accord to do the right thing because there's there's just too much pressure in Congress and they just they don't have the courage to fight, to put it frank. They're they're too afraid to, to fight. They don't have spines. They're 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 either clueless or spineless. Uh, either way, them just being there isn't enough. So the, there needs to be a groundswell of pressure from the bottom. It has to be a bottom-up approach. We have to pressure them to pressure Joe Biden. We have to make demands. We have to fight. And it's tough. You know, it's hard to recommend grassroots activism and direct action in the middle of a pandemic. But that really is the missing ingredient here. And I don't necessarily blame people for getting demoralized here because think about how far we are from actually achieving anything that's truly transformative. So on one hand... Joe Biden is a conservative Democrat. He could speak the language of progressives as much as he wants. He could sound like Bernie Sanders on the State of the Union, uh, during the State of the Union address, rather. Uh, but I don't care what you say. I care what you do. Talk is cheap, but actions are what actually make the difference. So we have progressives who need to pressure Joe Biden to do better, but they won't. And then even if they were successfully able to pressure Joe Biden to do better, that still doesn't necessarily mean that Joe Biden has the spine to stand up to conservatives within his own party. I mean, he needs to put pressure on Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin to kill the filibuster. Otherwise, nothing you want is going to get accomplished. Whatever you're able to do, I mean, good luck getting 60 votes for it, right? And people cite the, uh, the COVID relief package as like this huge achievement, and it was. It, it was truly beneficial, right? But the stimulus checks alone isn't enough. Even Donald Trump passed stimulus checks. So we have to expect the squad to pressure Joe Biden. And then, even if they're successful there, Joe Biden has to pressure Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to do the correct thing. And I think that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema actually are aligned with Joe Biden, but they're a convenient cover for Joe Biden so that way if things don't get accomplished that he doesn't actually want to get accomplished, he could just say, well, look, I tried to kill the filibuster, but I have members of my own party that don't want to do that. And I mean, this goes back to what AOC said. She made a comment about, I think the conduct of the administration has been in good faith. Has it though? Because he's patting you on the head and listening to you. I mean, these are social techniques that uh, are effective, but if you're a member of Congress, you should take into account the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is doing his job to make you feel like you're listened to, but that doesn't actually mean that he's taking into account what you want. I mean, the squad, uh, progressive members uh, of, uh, of Congress, they've been legislatively irrelevant. Anything that they want is not getting put into any bills. 
and anything that they boast about is what you know just random rank and file democrats also support so is that really something that you can claim credit for it's just it's really frustrating and they have to turn it around like trying to kiss up to joe biden i think that sure you can argue strategically maybe there's some value in that but it hasn't paid off you kissing his ass rolling over and dying to leadership it hasn't paid off it hasn't been beneficial and if you're trying to somehow make it so that way you're playing uh 4d chess and you're using reverse psychology you're trying to make it seem like joe biden is a good guy so joe manchin and kirsten cinema seem like the bad guys i mean whatever strategy you have it's not working and that's even if we assume that you have a strategy because i mean when i hear cory bush go on cable news and say ayanna presley told me that my vote is my own i can't help but deduce okay so they literally are just like occupying the seats right now they're not fighting so you have to do better you have to do better with peace and love you have to actually fight because guess what you have a two-year window you have to assume that democrats are going to lose at least one chamber of congress in the 2022 midterm elections so everything that you're unable to accomplish now will soon be politically impossible come 2022 so if you think it's difficult now just wait. So that's why I say, I mean, are we going to see a single achievement squarely out of, you know, congressional progressives? Are they going to put up anything? Uh, I'll tell you, not if they continue on this current trajectory. They have to turn it around. They have to be courageous and they have to be indivisible in Congress, stick together and actually fight actually make demands and actually threaten to withhold their votes from key legislative initiatives if they don't get what they want it's exactly what joe manchin and conservative democrats do and they get what they want so it's time that progressives do the same and flex their muscles but uh, i mean things like this from aoc and pramila jayapal this ain't it chief do better so a couple of years ago on the program, we reacted to a video about British people who were told the cost and uh, prices of prescription drugs and medical procedures in the United States and their reactions. Uh, it was just, it was really entertaining to see because they were genuinely shocked that the American healthcare system is so terrible and that we tolerate this most of all, right? Because in, in the UK, you have a national health system. I mean, it really is ideal that's exactly what i want having said that though there's a new video by the new york times where they show more non-americans details and statistics about our healthcare system here in america and their reactions are just priceless enjoy if healthcare is a constitutional right then that's a form of communism because no country could afford those payments without seizing the assets of everybody else <laughs> what? <laughs> welcome to finland Oh! Dudes, what's going on? <gasps> oh my god! It's making me so mad and I... Ah. I mean, come on guys, it's, it's not that hard. Look around the world, everyone else seems to have figured it out, right? Imagine you're in America. Which of these options would be best for you? Hmm, that's uh... Yeah, that's... 
It's a lot to think about. What is it? An oop max. I guess with what I got here, I would go with plan D because the deductible is zero. Okay, there's there's more. Gold HMO uh PPO PPO HMO. And what are copays? I I don't get that's like if you pay for Spotify Premium, and Spotify still makes you pay every time you listen to a song. It's too complicated. I'm lost. I'm so lost. In Canada, I don't have to really think about the diff, you know, different plans that I could pick from. You just pay one amount um, per month, and all the major treatments are covered. At least 70% of our medical expenses are always covered. Uninsured, unable to afford treatment for a tooth infection that keeps flaring Ooh. up. Oh. Cook Emma Rittner lost her job in March. I did manage to get antibiotics from a friend whose mom regularly goes down to Mexico, and I've been taking that, um, self-medicating, uh, based off of Dr. Google's advice. Dr. Google's advice. Here in Japan, even if you lose a job, you would never lose your health insurance. When you lose your job, that's when society should help you. I've chosen a creative job and had the backing of a healthcare system. But if you don't have that, do you pick the safe job or do you pick the creative job? The average price per unit for insulin in 2018 Germany, $11. Canada's $12. Wow. It's like eight times the price of uh, insulin in Canada. I guess that explains why Americans come up to Canada to buy medication. <laughs> the, sorry, I'm sorry, hold on. So the FDA doesn't have any authority over the prices? We have also privatized health insurance companies in Germany, but the prices uh, are regulated by the government. The government negotiates the prices and fixes that price for two years. In Singapore, they regulate this stuff to keep the prices down and, you know, avoid like this happening. Right, so I'm looking at an American medical bill. Why is it so expensive? $428,000 for rooms and such empty spaces. What? Much cheaper to go Hilton Hotel than this one. Skin to skin after a C-section is $39. I had to pay $39.35 to hold my baby after he was born. You need to pay money to hold a baby? My brother Jamie, who's in a lot of our videos, was pretty badly injured. He's going to lose a couple fingers. Uh, if you can give a dollar or if you can give $5, every little bit will help him and his family. That's heartbreaking. I, I... GoFundMe should not be something that people have to resort to to pay for their medical bills. So in America, people spend more than twice as much as in Japan for healthcare. You know, if I paid twice the amount for a car, I would want the car to be twice as good. So what's, what's the life expectancy in the U.S.? <laughs> Why is it less? The U.S. should be on top of both of those lists. Like, if you're charging your citizens that much money, then they better be living the longest lives. It, it, it doesn't make sense.
When Alec turned 26, he was no longer allowed on his mother's insurance plan. Instead, he decided to pay for his insulin over the counter at list price. But the pharmacist told him a month's supply would be $1,300. He left empty-handed. Alec's official cause of death was diabetic ketoacidosis. A couple of years ago, I developed a heart condition and I had to have my heart restarted three times. Uh, after the third time I had it restarted, the doctor suggested I get heart surgery. When I was 13, I started to get sick and really, really sick. I was then very quickly admitted into hospital where after three weeks I had treatment for a brain virus. The cost of the operation I think is about $60,000. Uh, and then uh, the next day when I left the hospital and I got my bill, it was a bill for parking. It was about 30 bucks. I was treated by royal doctors, had several MRIs, lumbar punctures, all for free. So I, I was pretty happy that I, uh, I lived in Canada and had universal health care. I couldn't have survived if I was in America. To know that I can get sick, I can get injured, but I will still be taken care of. That is freedom. This is not freedom. I really loved the reaction to Bill O'Reilly saying that if healthcare was a constitutional right, that would be tantamount to communism. Um, because you could just see how shocked they are with that level of stupidity. But it's honestly worse than that because um, I don't know about you folks, but I know people who thought that the Affordable Care Act was communism, literally. Conservatives have made this argument. The ACA is communism. Let me remind you, the ACA is a plan that hinges entirely on private insurance. And the role of the government is to basically just pump millions and millions and millions of dollars into the system to subsidize the cost of existing plans. But I mean, long term, as we've all seen in practice, it doesn't work out. The Affordable Care Act failed because what's affordable is subjective. But really, there shouldn't be a cost associated with healthcare when it comes to the point of service, right? Because so long as there's a cost, it's going to be prohibitive. And what we should care about is people getting healthcare. It shouldn't be commodified. We shouldn't worry about whether or not somebody has uh, the money to pay. We should just worry that they receive that care. It's a basic service that government should provide. I mean, we expect the government to provide us with roads. Uh, we expect the government to pay for a fire department to come out to our houses if we need them. There's a lot of things that the government does but for some reason in the united states healthcare isn't one of the expectations that we have for government we we've just culturally accepted this and thankfully the tide is turning here but not fast enough so um yeah um so i like how when they were looking at the plans one of the guys said uh what are copays that's like if you pay for spotify premium and spotify still makes you pay every time you listen to a song exactly and that seems like an oversimplification but that's exactly it why am I paying every single month a gigantic premium? I think between me and my husband, it's like fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. I don't even know how much our deductible is. It's, it's super high. But if we're already paying money every single month, and furthermore, a lot of us don't even use the healthcare, especially if we're young, why do we have to pay for copays? And, you know, I thought that I was getting a bargain because when I actually finally got insurance under the Affordable Care Act. I signed up for the cheapest shitty bronze plan, which is still expensive. Uh, and I went to a doctor and I didn't have a copay. So I thought, oh my God, this must be a really great plan, even though it's bronze. Uh, come to find out, I get a bill. 
a couple of weeks later in the mail. So the copay actually would have been preferable than the uh, hundreds of dollars. Uh, it's just our system is a joke. It's an absolute joke. But yet conservatives uh, in both parties in the United States prop it up as like being one of the best in the world. But this video debunks that as well. Um, I love how shocked they were. Uh, one person said, you need to pay money to hold a baby. That was the cost of $39 for skin-to-skin -skin contact. Yeah, they nickel and dime you in every way they conceivably can. And anyone who's ever received healthcare in the United States can attest to this. Every single American has a story about how shitty the American healthcare system is. And when uh, they showed the price of drugs, you know, the United States in comparison with other developed countries, it's shocking how much more we pay. I mean, I have a nephew who needs insulin. He needs this to survive. And just the worry that he can't afford it and that my sister can't provide the insulin that he needs, that in and of itself is so immoral. A society that allows something like this to go on, somebody in America in the richest country on earth having to worry that they won't be able to, you know, afford their life-saving insulin. It's just, it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. But the fact that it does, it really speaks to where our priorities lie as a nation. Um, they brought up the GoFundMes. Every single person knows firsthand that uh, there's someone in their lives that needed a GoFundMe. Uh if I'm paying twice as much for a car, it better be twice as good. And that comment stood out to me because that's such a great point. It's simple, but it really is punchy. It's it's concise. It's exactly what I think Americans need to hear. We pay so much more than other countries, but our outcomes are worse. Our life expectancy is lower. It, it's honestly, to me, I find it so hard to believe that every single American isn't just furious all the time thinking about our healthcare system. I mean, I talked last year on the program about how months and months and months after my dad passed away, my mom was still receiving medical bills from my dad. It's bad enough that she was grieving during a pandemic, couldn't be with her loved ones because, you know, COVID-19. But on top of that, on top of all of the bad things, she still received uh, these bills from my dad, who died a long time ago now, for thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. It's so disgusting so then you add on top of the grief this fear oh my god am i gonna go bankrupt am i gonna afford this do i actually have to pay for this is this just a statement from the insurance company are they gonna cover it because nothing is clear in our healthcare system you, you just don't know right sometimes you get bills and you don't actually have to pay them it's just like an itemized receipt sometimes you do so you know you, you get confused you get uh, fearful of what's going to happen. Is your livelihood going to be affected if you can't pay tens of thousands of dollars? Because, of course, the normal human being in this country can't. It's just, it's awful. Now, the Canadian at the end, he said uh, he had a procedure. It cost $60,000, and all he paid was $30 for parking. I can't even imagine what that would be like. I, I honestly can't fathom it. I cannot fathom it. And look, all of this, in some, I think this is pretty obvious, but I think it's obvious why the health insurance industry, along with their shills in Congress and on mainstream media, are fighting so hard against Medicare for All. Because if we actually got Medicare for All codified into law, if they try to take this away from us, like let's say, hypothetically speaking, we elected a progressive as president, and it actually passed. 
by some miracle, it passed, and then the next Republican administration threatened to repeal it or chip away at it, there would be riots in the streets. You can't take something like that away from people, which is why even in the UK and in Canada, the Conservative Party in Canada, the Tories in the UK, they can't just outright run on getting rid of their uh, public health systems they can't do that because it'd be too unpopular you can't take that away from someone once you give that uh, give that to them so what they do is they try to covertly undermine the system by partially privatizing it and chipping away at it slowly but surely over the course of decades and you know that's still bad that's still terrible but they still have to pay fealty to the fact that they support the national health system in the uk conservatives in canada still have to say yeah i support our system our single-payer system of course i don't want an american system and some of them do because they're they're sellouts they're corrupt but you're never going to hear them say that because they know how unpopular it would be and to give you an example of another policy like that is social security how many times have we seen members of both parties try to either fully privatize it or partially privatize it and immediately they face swift and severe backlash like that it's because if you put something into the hands of the American people and they love it, you cannot take that away. And if you try, there is going to be hell to pay. So that's why they're fighting so hard against Medicare for All. And even if it's really demoralizing, even if it's really frustrating to know that people are dying every single year that we don't have Medicare for All, I do understand in the back of my mind, I'm trying to you know, uh, remind myself that this is evidence that we're winning and we're scaring them. If they were just ignoring us, if they weren't dispatching hundreds of lobbyists to, you know, convince politicians to not support single-payer, then um, that'd show how ineffectual we were, how uh, we lacked the persuasiveness needed to actually sell it, but we've sold it. The majority of Americans now support Medicare for All, and depending on the poll, Republicans support it too. So, I mean... We are winning in terms of convincing Americans. Now it's just a matter of actually getting it codified into law. And once we do that, it'll immediately transition into a fight to preserve what we've managed to accomplish. Because like, you know, the UK and Canada, uh, you know, there's going to be private forces that try to chip away at it. But we, we fight. It's, it's a never-ending battle. And it's tiring. But I do believe that there is going to come a time, hopefully, when we do get Medicare for all. Um... And regardless of how long it takes, the conclusion is that it'll still be way too late. But it's better late than never. It's absolutely needed. And it's the only solution to our absolutely atrocious, for-profit, privately-run healthcare system, which is just not only a clusterfuck, but it is uh, literally deadly. Well, that's everything. Uh, we've covered as much as I am capable of covering this week. But if you actually want more, if you want more of my voice, I don't know who would, uh, you can go to twitch.tv slash report. I'm usually live on Thursdays or Fridays. It really depends. And I'm trying so hard to get a set schedule. Bear with me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come eventually. But if you uh, want to know when I go live, just follow me over on Twitch. And yeah, so that's all that I've got for you. Uh, I will see you all next week. Uh, thank you again to our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members. Uh, take care, everyone. This has been The Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo. Peace.